Hi everyone and welcome to the Poema Podcast. Uh, I'm your host James Prescott and uh, it's really great to have you all here with me today. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome Kyle Strobel to the podcast today. Uh, welcome Kyle, it's really great to have you here. Hey James, good to be with you. Uh, yeah, um, so Kyle is um, um, he's a, a theologian, he's an author, um, a teacher, preacher um, and a um, very clever guy, written some amazing books. Um, and he's just about to release his new book. Um, and uh, so, tell tell us a bit about that book, Kyle, and what that's um, what it, what it's called and what it's all about. Yeah, well, this book is called "The Way of the Dragon" or "The Way of the Lamb: Searching for Jesus's Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It," which is a bit of a lengthy title, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we like the dragon and lamb imagery, but we thought we needed to properly explain it a bit. <laughs> yeah, just in case people thought it was like a Bruce Lee biography or something. So <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but the the book was a it, it's been an interesting journey for the last six years or so. Jamin Goggin and I have been working on it, and about six years ago, um, Jamin and I sat down and we really. We really wanted to explore the theme of power, and, and in particular, what the nature of power and weakness was. You know, Jesus has all these very um, interesting and at times, you know, disconcerting things to say. Yeah. Um, first will be last, the last shall be first. Um, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. Without me, you can do nothing. And then Paul, of course, picks this up on um, and is confronted by Jesus himself and is, is told, you know, my power is made perfect in weakness. And mm. so we had, you know, this is the kind of stuff you grow up in the church hearing every now and again, but no one really explaining. Um, and so we wanted to explore the theme biblically, but we also recognized that we, we, we couldn't offer ourselves as the models that, you know, we're in our 30s, we're, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm not even sure what it would mean for someone in their 30s to present themselves as, you know, this is, we've understood power and weakness, you know. Yeah. And yeah, so absolutely. as a part of the project, we wanted to go find people who we thought really and truly have embodied this, not only for a little bit, but for decades upon decades of ministry. Mm. And so as a part of this project, we kind of went on the road and we went and we visited with um, Eugene Peterson, um, with Jean Vanier outside of Paris, um, with John Perkins, the nonviolent resistant activist, um, with folks like James Houston and Dallas Willard and Marva Dawn. And we sat down with each of them and, and really these interviews kind of helped form not only the book itself, but kind of our direction in the book. And so along the way, we were confronted with questions we were not prepared to answer. We were not uh, expecting to have to answer. For instance, in the Marva Dawn mm -hmm. interview, we were really confronted with the powers. And that if we're going to talk about power and weakness, we have to talk about power and weakness as it stands against the powers and the principalities of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and as we, as we interviewed Eugene Peterson, you know, Eugene wrote a wonderful book on the book of Revelation, and our, our title comes from a quote from that book, where Eugene outlines the two different ways presented in Revelation, the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb, the mm. way of worldly power or the way of Jesus's power. And, mm. and so the book narrates 
these two ways through these embodied manifestations of the Jesus way in, in our day and age. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, that sounds fascinating. That sounds, it really does. It really does. Um, um, so what did you kind of discover about yourself when you were writing this book? What was, what kind of things did this bring to light inside of you when you were doing the research and, and talking to these people? Yeah, well, <laughs> quite a lot. You know, I mean, one of the reasons we came on this topic was that Jamin and I, we both um, went to seminary and we both went to seminary for, even while we were there, we kind of knew there's a real mixed bag in our motivations to be here. Um, we we want to learn, we want to be faithful. There's a genuine call, I think. But there's also this realization is that we wanted to be great. Mm. We There was a real grandiosity tied to our calling. And and yet, as we both did in the Masters of the New Testament, and as you're studying the New Testament, we were constantly confronted by the sayings of Jesus, um, by um, Paul. You know, Paul is just flush with this stuff. You think of the book of Philippians, for instance. Mm. And you have, you have Paul giving two kind of different resumes, so to speak, in Philippians. Philippians 2, Jesus' resume, who had everything, the top of the ladder, and he lowered it, and he just kind of descended the ladder and emptied himself. And then Paul in Philippians 3 gives his own resume, which is quite impressive, and then says it's rubbish. <laughs> it's, you know, compared to knowing Christ is meaningless. And we, we, became real, we came to realize that there is this sense that we, it's very actually easy, particularly in the church today, I think, to seek worldly power for the sake of the kingdom. Mm, and to put, to put it in Paul's language, I think this is the thing that scared us most as we explored the book is we came to realize that the, that in our minds the greatest temptation facing the church today is the temptation to sow in the flesh and hope you'll reap in the spirit. Mm. But as the, the kind of proverbial axiom gives us, if you reap in the flesh, you will sow. If you sow in the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. Um, mm. And so the, there's a real temptation for us to kind of have good ends, I want people to know the Lord. I want people to grow in their faith. I want, you know, whatever it is, but to employ worldly means. And as, as we're exploring these things, um, one of the most, probably the most disconcerting thing hit us. And it was in the Marva interview, Marva Don's wonderful on this kind of material. And we were, as we were interviewing her and even in preparation for that interview, we, we started to explore James three. Yeah. Yeah. And in James three, you and all throughout scripture, you have this notion of the two ways, you know, the way of the flesh, the way of the spirit, the way of the wisdom versus the way of folly, um, the way of the world versus the way of the kingdom, all these kind of things. Well, James three gives us another two ways, the way from above, which is the way of Jesus and the way from below, which is the way of the world, the flesh and the devil. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is that James is linking those three things as having a shared value system and a shared methodology that, and one of the things that really kind of, I think hits you when you read that passage is James gives you two characteristics of the evil way, right? The way from below. And you kind of think, wow, this is the way of the world, the flesh and the devil. These are probably pretty, pretty harsh things, murder, I don't know, pride, you know, whatever it would be. And the two he gives, the two characteristics are selfish ambition and jealousy. 
And he says, where these exist, every vile practice exists. And Marva Dawn says, if you want to find selfish ambition and jealousy, just go to a pastor's conference. Hmm. And, you know, and I would say any academic theological conference, for instance. And, and Jamin and I knew, we know jealousy and selfish ambition in ministry. We, we've experienced that. We've, we've employed that. And, you know, but then we look around at the, at the kind of um, the scene right now, the evangelical world. And what we see is we see a lot of pastors who are employing these things quite publicly. And yet people tend to just kind of look the other way. It's like, well, it's not like he's having an affair. <laughs> it's not mm. like it's totally immoral that they're, that they're clearly arrogant, right? Or clearly kind of posturing themselves against other pastors. Whereas James 3 wants to say the opposite. Actually, this is tapping into the power system of the demonic. In order to try to fuel the church, and it's killing us. Yeah, that's... and that was really the thing that confronted us deeply about about how nefarious the powers really are. Yeah, it is a very big challenge, isn't it? I mean, you're... there's a lot of um, leaders nowadays who are, you know, in the public eye, um, Christian and people who aren't Christians, and. But yeah, the kind of self-help kind of people as well. Who it's very difficult to not believe the hype. It's very, you know, we live in the, like the you know the social media, twenty-four hour media time where everything is promoted, everything is marketed, everything is sold to us. You know, and it's not that marketing is a bad thing. It's that, um, but that we can often get caught up in ourselves and it being about ourselves and. Mm-hmm that we're promoting ourselves rather than our, the ideas that we're talking about or the causes that we're talking about. And, you know, I mean, I find that as a, as a, as a writer, as someone who, you know, who puts, um, uh, who, someone who puts work out into the world, you know, who blog posts and, and you know, book and, and podcasts and yeah. things, you know, there's that, it, it, it's very tempting to think it's all about you and um, to get lulled into that kind of sense of, yeah, this is this is I want I great, you know. And I'm right about everything and I shouldn't be questioned. And right. you know, but just because you know, and I've had all these experiences and done all this research and stuff, so I'm right. You know, because everyone <laughs> likes me and everyone and everyone buys my books and everyone or lots of people think I'm great, therefore I must be right and nobody can correct me. And it's a very easy and very subtle thing we can get tempted into believing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know, with the the way the kind of industries work now. I mean, I, I even think the, the Christian publishing industry, where so much of the pressure is put on the author to sell their product, mm. that it it's a it's a and it's something I've struggled with ever since I started writing. Is what is the line? Like, what is my calling in regards to this? Um, you believe in what you wrote, so you want people to know about it. Um, but there's a sense where you can actually spend much more of your energy trying to get it out there than actually that you do actually putting into <laughs> what, what you had to write to begin with and, and all those kind of things. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in trying to, to get your message out there and instead of just focusing really maybe more explicit time on meditating through what, what do I need to say? in a world where a lot of things that are already being said 
and maybe my voice doesn't need to climb to the top. Uh, maybe I'm not called to be a best-selling author, for instance. Uh, maybe that's mm-hmm. not what the Lord has for me. Um, I actually presume I won't be, <laughs> quite honestly, and yeah. and that's fine. You know, that's that's you know, it's it's not. My calling didn't include that part of it. I'm called to write. I'm not necessarily called to sell. And that's, it's a hard balance, though, when you do want to let people know this book exists and you do believe in it. You know, it's, I think with this book in particular, we're curious because it, and this was the hardest book I've ever written in, in, in the sense that we have to name some really difficult things. Hmm. And one of our convictions in writing it was that we needed to name them in ourselves first. Um, yeah. that, that shouldn't mean we don't name them where we see them. And we do name some pretty gnarly things in the, that we've seen in the church. But at the end of the day, there's this. we want the, the realization to come through very clearly that we can name these in the church because we first and foremost see these within ourselves. And I'm not naming them in the church because I think, look at these people, how nuts they are. They don't get it. But I I see, look at what these people have done. And I look at my heart and I know that I'm capable of these things as well. Hmm. What do we do to respond well and Christianly to what we see going on? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very difficult, isn't it? Um, Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. As you say, in my experience, it's so much of it's about the hustle nowadays so much of it is about jockeying for position you yeah. know and you know and um yeah and it's just it's just it just frustrates me you know and um and yeah and i know that i can easily get tempted into you know like these daydream fantasies of like, oh i'm a best-selling author you know oh i've got the blue tick next to my name on like on, on social media wow look at me you know um, everyone wants me to, to go to their event everyone wants me to speak on their whatever you know and that plays to ego a little bit and you know media around us kind of wants to tell us it's all about us you know when you turn on wow. your TV and advertising it tells you what it wants to tell you it's all about you and it's all about um, you being better and you being popular and you being having the life you want and you know that you're the centre of your own life and of course the challenge of of um, the Jesus way is that it's not all about you, and um, you know that that it's the other and and ultimately God who you know who it's all about, and it's not in that we're you know the last will be first kind of thing, and love your neighbour yeah. and love God, you know, um, and that's the challenge. Well, and that's what was so interesting, you know, as we as we met with all of these folks as we travelled around, and you know we're. I, I can't remember who the youngest person we met with, but my guess would be mid seventies mm-hmm. up through mid nineties. Wow! And so you have people who you know we met. We met with James Houston for several days, and he was mentored by C.S. Lewis. Oh, um, wow! I mean, just it's just kind of crazy, you know. Um, Jean Vanier, who mentored Henry Nouwen, and That's awesome. you know, we're sitting with these folks who oftentimes are in obscure location. They they haven't they haven't devoted their lives to posturing themselves into positions of power. I mean, James Houston's a good example, who was very high up at Oxford and could have basically 
um, rested on his laurels for the rest of his career without much of a problem there at the height of academic power. And he left to start Regent College in Vancouver, which was supposed to be, you know, his original vision for it and what it originally was, was a school for mere Christians or um, stay-at-home moms and lawyers and doctors and plumbers and people who wanted to know how to be faithful to Jesus and what they do. And he started the school, I think, if I remember correctly, with three or four students. I think he left Oxford to start a school with three or four students. And he, he left um, the, the spotlight of the academy, and he went well into a place of hiddenness. Jean Vanier lives an hour and a half northeast of Paris, in the middle of nowhere, in a tiny town where no one knows his name. Hmm. Um, Eugene Peterson's in the middle of nowhere in Montana. And yet, several times a month, people are flying out there to sit down and talk to him. Yeah. This is, this is what I think is so interesting about power in the kingdom, is that people who have kingdom power, it isn't, it isn't as if power is the enemy for the Christian. We believe in power, we just believe in power through weakness, and it's a different mode of power. And so when you, when you actually attain this kind of power, the world recognizes it usually. Yeah. Um, and, and the world sees, I mean, Mother Teresa was a great example in this regard. She could walk into Harvard, and they would revere her, mm. though they didn't believe in her power system. But yeah. they knew she was powerful. Yeah. And similarly with these folks, you know, here are people who have rejected any kind of scheme we've developed today for how to be powerful in the church, how to be powerful in the social media age. They don't do any of it. And yet here are people who, you know, have people like, you know, Jamin and I flying around the world just to sit with them and talk to them. And we're clearly not the only ones doing that. And they have given themselves to an entirely different way. And so it was, it was interesting. I mean, it really was a contrast in many ways to what we see going on, particularly over in the States here in terms of the evangelical church, where the, the conferences are all the youngest, the hottest, the, the sexiest kind of things going on in ministry. And you don't get the 90 year old person who's had 60 years of faithful ministry on, on stage because we we don't equate elderly with wisdom, we equate elderly with out of touch, mm. and, and that is a distinctively worldly power structure that we've we've yeah. baptized in the church. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I heard a talk by Rob Bell about um, I can't remember what it was called, but basically the the gist of it was how is it that the the people who with the most knowledge, the most life experience, the most wisdom, um, you know, who've learned, who've been, had all the ups and downs, and have made all the mistakes and learned from them. How is it that we're just writing them off and sending them off to live like on the on the west coast? How are we how are we not listening to these people? These are the people who are the people that we need to listen to more. And we're not, yeah. you know, and our culture kind of just rejects them, and that, and also that not only that, but a lot of them just accept that that role yeah. instead of, you know, what happened to like he talked about the village elder, you know, what what happened to that, you know, we must we kind of we've lost that a little bit, you know, yeah. um, and that was I, that really struck a chord that that did when I heard that. Yeah, and well, part of one of our kind of agendas with the book is we really wanted to honor these folks. 
like each each person we interviewed has played kind of a special role either through their books and their ministries or even just a couple of them have been mentors of ours and we wanted to um, we really wanted to do something a project where we can say how can we honor their life of ministry and and you know to hear from them as at the end of their lives I mean I remember we were with Dallas Willard about a year before he died mm. and to hear Dallas reflect back on ministry and leadership in the kingdom was fascinating um, he talked about seminary education he talked about the temptations of the pastor um, I mean it's it's you were, we were hitting these people in in a kingdom term in their prime at the end of their life where they could look back now on the whole at the highest point of their wisdom and really speak profoundly into it and it, it you know it's it's one of the things that it, it touched Jamin and I deeply. I mean, there were several moments throughout this mm. this process where we were just, I mean, it kind of felt like we were standing on holy ground. Hmm. Yeah, that must have been quite humbling for you as well. Like, you know, in terms of your own where you are as people, like where because we often think that we're, you know, I'm you know I'm doing well. I've got a lot of knowledge. I've got all these these quali- these qualifications. I've written all these books. I must. You know, you have that kind of quiet confidence in yourself. You know, and sometimes it's justified because you you've achieved a lot, but but then you kind of come up again. You come up and meet these these kind of people, and suddenly suddenly it's kind of like ah, you know, you get a sense of where you kind of really are in your journey. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it's such a and, and as you said before, with the way that the kind of social media age has kind of formed us, not only is that accepted. But it's expected that that's what you would do, that um, in a sense, if you're not kind of um, grabbing all the things you've done and presenting them to everyone and kind of almost shoving them in everyone's faces saying, look at me, you're not doing your, your, yourself any justice. And yeah, I mean, I, I constantly brought back to Jesus's claim that if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. And I, I think in many ways, what we see in our day and age are people who are just just doing that and we can look around and see people who are trying to generate a self in their own power they're trying to save their lives and they're losing them um they are being warped they are being superficial they are they are getting into their elderly years and they aren't wise (laughs) and and i think that's that's the other great tragedy of of the movement of our culture is that in many ways maybe we have we have elders who aren't aren't elderly in their wisdom. Mm. Um, and that, that's decades of neglect on, on what it means to be to be a part of the kingdom. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, was there a part of the... I, I remember we talked about this book before. Um, you mentioned something about Harry Potter. Yeah. This book. Yeah, so, so that's... So we... Um, I wrote an ebook alongside this book that we're doing, we're, we're doing as a free giveaway for people who pre-order. So we have a website called dragonerlamb.com where you can pre-order and you get a free copy of a book I wrote. And I, I'm a bit of a Harry Potter nut. I love Harry Potter. And I find that Christians tend not to read Harry Potter very well if they read them at all, if they read the books at all. Um, because it's, the books are much more explicit about the Christian themes in the movies. Um, and I think when we do think Christianly about Harry Potter, it almost is always like, 
well, look, Harry died and he kind of rose again and that's kind of Jesus-y. And, I mean, it's very superficial in terms of what we generally tend to think. Whereas, in my mind, the Harry Potter books are mainly about one twofold kind of issue. And it's the way of power. And in the twofold nature of the issue is that you have two ways of power. You have the way of darkness and the way of light. And the second part of that is both ways stand before death differently. Mm. And so the way of darkness is developed, um, at least in terms of the narrative as we know it, is kind of developed by Grindelwald, is passed on to Voldemort and perfected by Voldemort. And Voldemort's followers are called the Death Eaters, right? So when they stand before death, they seek to consume it to gain immortality. But death poisons them and it warps them, which is why they become less human and more beast-like. And one of the reasons I think people miss this theme is that they probably haven't read very closely the tales of Beetle the Bard, which is one of the books in the Harry Potter universe that isn't a part of the actual series. But it's a book that they, they read at Hogwarts and you would have had it read to you as children if you grew up in a magical household kind of a thing. And in, the, in that book, there's, there's these short story, stories for kids. And um, in one of the stories, um, The Warlock with a Hairy Heart, it, it's a whole story about how you have a warlock who's seeking power. And he mm. sees his friends losing it because they fall in love. And when you fall in love, you do silly things. And you kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to the grandiosity he has. And so he cuts out his heart using dark magic. And he becomes more like a beast. And that story is supposed to run alongside the Voldemort story, and they kind of are mutually informative. And so what's happening to Voldemort is as he gives himself to dark magic, he's becoming more snake-like, an obvious biblical imagery, mm-hmm. for, for not only more beast-like, but he's, he's becoming evil. He's, he's living in the way of darkness, the way from below. Mm-hmm. But then you have the other way, the way of light, which is developed by Dumbledore in the story and passed on to Harry and perfected by Harry. Um, Dumbledore is very clear that he couldn't have perfected this way, but Harry can. And these these folks are the order of the phoenix, and the phoenix is the bird that must accept death for the sake of resurrection. Right. Um, the phoenix is the representation that one must stand before death, and in fact accept it sacrificially for others so that they can live. And and what you see in, in what Harry's mother did um, in, in her self-sacrificial death and what Harry eventually does in his self-sacrificial death for his friends is that it breaks the power of evil. Mm-hmm. And so Rowling's narrating the two ways of life and the two different power structures and how that leads us to stand before death. And there's a great irony here that if you embrace death, you can truly live the resurrected life because you can trust in the one who has defeated it. But if you Mm. seek to be immortal on your own, it will destroy you and it will warp your soul. And in fact, you'll be enslaved to death. And so in many ways, Harry Potter serves a really helpful kind of parallel story to what Jamin and I are doing in the way of the dragon and the way of the lamb. I think Rowling does a a magnificent job of narrating the way of Jesus and, and how the way of Jesus um, attacks and undermines the way of evil in the world. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah, that is I mean, as someone, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest here. I'll be honest here. I've, uh, I've uh, not read 
um, <laughs> the Harry Potter books. Um, the, it's like confession there. Um, I've, I've I've only seen the first couple of films actually as well. I've, I've um, um, I, I just never I don't know I don't know why I just never seem to get into it. But um, now I'm actually much more fascinated now knowing the metaphors. Not just yeah, I mean like hearing from you and what you said and and you know hearing that actually it was kind of a there's a lot of Christian themes in it that that was intended as well. Um, yeah, it makes me want to read them. It makes me want to you know engage with these stories a bit better because um, understanding that you know because uh, you know it just seems fascinating. It's like you know, like Narnia. You know that's one of the reasons I love Narn- the Narnia books is the metaphors that are in there. Um, totally. So powerful, and um, yeah. yeah, well, that'll be that'll be a fascinating book to read, definitely. And again, it's that it's that it's that paradox, isn't it, of um, the way of power is to the way of true of of divine power is to of godly power is to give up power. Mm-hmm. You know, to give up your life, to give up what you have, to surrender it, um, to let it go. And um, yeah, that's a challenge. I think you know. What do you think that looks like? What do you think that could look like for just the general person on the street? What what kind of thing? Do you, what what, do you, what applications do you think that 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 we could use? Well, you know, I think one of the things that we do very naturally in our culture, and this goes back in many ways to the, even the social media culture that is so we so imbibe, is that. We have become convinced that we have to create cells in our own power. We have to construct a life that is safe, that's secure, that's successful. We have to create identity and value. We have to, um, in ministry perhaps, even if we're not in like professionalized ministry, like we have to somehow create maybe in a life with God, we have to create our, our praise and our prayer. We, 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 there's all these things we think we create. And what I think Jesus is saying ultimately is that's lay that down. That if you want to know who you are, find yourself in me. Mm. Um, one of the things that, that Jesus shows us about imitation is that Jesus was constantly pointing beyond himself to the Father. Mm. Jesus embraced that he is the Son, and as the Son He's constantly referencing back to the Father, saying, I can do nothing on my own. I do what the Father's doing. And then he calls us to claim, oh, we can do nothing without Jesus, right? And so there's this, there's this parallelism between our relation to God and, G- and how Jesus kind of expressed what it means for the, a human person to live with God. And it means to find yourself in him, that, that we don't have to construct a self that's powerful or that's safe or that's secure. That, and in fact, we can't. That, that to even do that is to buy into the way from below. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it will destroy us. It, it'll, it'll, and in the movies, there's one in the Harry Potter film, one of the powerful images there is that Voldemort is, is horrifying, he's powerful, he's, everyone's afraid of him. But then you get this glimpse of what he looks like in eternity. And he's this warped, fragile creature curled up in a fetal position that can't move. And you get the sense that here is he has so warped his soul that in reality he has no power, even though he's convinced himself he is the most powerful. Mm. And I think this is 
this is you know, and, and in many ways, if you if we read the Gospels closely, I think the the, the God, this is what the disciples are struggling with is mm. they followed Jesus because they wanted power. They, they, in many ways, they did exactly what I did when I went to seminary. And, but then they're confronted with Jesus. And they're mm. forced to be confronted with, why is he taking us on the road to the cross? Because we're not interested in the cross. We're, we're interested in power. You know, we, who's the greatest among us? You know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we, too, have to go on that journey to the cross with Jesus in, in whatever we're doing. And I... I don't think it's even, it's not simply in people who have, who have worldly power that this is a struggle for. We can embrace power in any aspect of our lives. And I think when James names selfish ambition and jealousy, he's really leveling the playing field a bit and saying, look, where this is hidden in your hearts, you are, you are walking in the way of, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and you are you are in a sense sowing to the flesh, and if you sow to the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. And that 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 goes as much for Christians as anyone. That Christians can try to sow the Christian life in the flesh. Um, and I think this is precisely what Galatians is about. Other people who are trying to sow the Christian life in a fleshly manner, and just hoping they'll reap in the spirit. And in fact, that's just not how it works. Hmm. And what is re- I mean, what is what does it look like for you personally to, to sow in the to sow in the spirit rather than sow in the flesh? Well, you know, one of the areas. I mean, some people are called to do things that are genuine weaknesses of theirs. So, for instance, you think of someone like Moses, who was called to a very public ministry of proclamation, and he didn't feel like he could actually speak very well. Well, if you weren't comfortable speaking and you were called to say preaching, that would be you'd be very You'd feel the weakness constantly. But I think others of us, and I put myself in this camp, we've been called into areas where we have a certain amount of just natural ability. Like I I have no problem getting in front of a crowd of people and talking. And it doesn't bother me how big or small that crowd is. It could be 5,000. It could be 10. I, I just don't care. It doesn't bother me at all. The problem is I am always going to be tempted to in areas where I have where I, where I have at least conceive of myself as having strengths, to rely on my strength and savvy in those things. And so now, when I'm doing ministry, when I'm preaching, when I'm teaching, I can rely on technique. I can rely on savvy. I can rely on personality, rather than relying on God. And so I've got to step back and say, okay, how do I, even in my strengths, embrace my weakness? And I think in many ways that means I'm embracing how tempted I am to wield my strength instead of resting on Christ. And in many ways, the directionality of that whole thing will slightly differ where, as you said earlier, when we talk about kind of how easy it is to to kind of push myself forward. Wow, look at me. Look what I'm doing. That, that those who are sowing in the spirit, Christ will be the one who is, who is seen. And, and this is why, you know, one of the, the kind of old adages that you hear sometimes about preaching is when you hear people leaving a sermon saying, man, that was great, they can rarely name anything about what was said. They, they don't know what was said. They, they're leaving the sermon going, that guy is great. And it has nothing to do with the actual content 
they were just impressed with him. And I think with, with people that have natural ability in public ministry, that's the temptation. The temptation is to, to be seen as great by others. I want to know, could people leave after they hear me preach and say, wow, the Lord is so good. The Lord is great. And that doesn't mean they have to somehow diminish what I did. Like, it's not this I have to negate. Like, it, it could be just as bad if I'm such a bad preacher. I'm getting in people's way. Right? There's a balance here. But the the middle ground, it isn't like, well, I'll just not, not speak well. It, it, there's an approach of where's my weakness, even in my strengths, and how do I embrace Christ there and what he's called me to? And so, I mean, for instance, and one of the things, going back to what we talked about earlier with the publishing, Hmm. There's, I, I'm, I'm constantly confronted with temptations in publishing, and you know one of the ways Jamin and I have kind of gone against those is for the um, for Beloved Dust and the Way of the Dragon, the Way of the Lamb, and these books in many ways are kind of sequential. We see we wrote Beloved Dust first in order to pave the way for the Way of the Dragon, the Way of the Lamb, and it's almost like a sequel, and we oftentimes in this in this industry you would write a chapter of a book. You would pitch it, a publishing company would pick it up, and they'd say, great, give us this book in six months. Well, you can't write a, a book in six months. It's, it's virtually impossible unless you, unless you have already mastered the content. And so we decided we're going to write the whole book and sit on it and, and wrestle through the content for a year. So that's what we do with Beloved Dust. We sat with that book. It took us several years to write. We didn't want to rush it. We were constantly praying, Lord, what are you what are you calling us to? We threw away whole sections. We had several chapters done and edited that we threw out. We um, we really wanted to be faithful, not to what will sell, but what to what to what our calling was. And then with this book, you know, it was it was how do we champion people we think need championing. And not champion ourselves in this. Actually, how do we present ourselves as, in many ways, as people who are, are probably are giving into this temptation more than mastering it? And it reminds me a little bit of what Peter did. If the, if the tradition is right that Peter is the source behind Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. what's interesting is Mark's gospel is the harshest on Peter. And, and it means Peter was was trying to constantly use himself as the negative example mm. uh, instead of the other disciples. So in many ways, Peter is kind of saying, let me just highlight how much I failed along the way. Yeah. And in a sense, that's what we wanted to do. And there's, I mean, I think that has, you know, there's, there's a temptation to do the opposite. And there's mm-hmm. a temptation to try to champion oneself. There's a temptation to try to say, look, we've figured this out now. Go and follow us. And, and so we've really worked hard at avoiding that. Um, and we still struggle with, you know, what is our calling then in marketing? What is our calling? You know, how, how, do, we, how do we really enter into the nature of the weakness here? And in some ways, that's just expectation as well. Mm. I'm... I have no expectations of being a Christian celebrity. Now, I also don't think I'm the kind of person that probably <laughs> would become one anyways. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people lining up to you know, hear me or you know, mm. buy my book and like that. I, I do worry about the people who are Christian celebrities, though. That's a hard place to be. Yeah. 
and 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 maybe even worse, I think. And and I don't know if this is as true in the UK as here, uh, uh, maybe with certain footballers or something. But when I see, like in the states, when you have a celebrity who comes out as a Christian, suddenly they're presented as they must be the voice of Christians, right? They must be mature. They're famous. How couldn't they be mature? And so you get these like 18, 19 year old kids who are professional basketball players, who are professional baseballers, whatever it is. Mm. And suddenly they're being called upon to represent the church. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're millionaires and they're like 18 years old. <laughs> they're, they're just trying to kind of not make horrible life decisions at this point. And, but I think it's interesting that even the church tends to really pride themselves on, look at who's on our team. Mm. And there's this worldly power that is attached to those kinds of things that are very, very dangerous. And in the church, we have our own version of celebrity. But the, when you adopt a worldly power system, that's when celebrity starts seeping in to the places like the church, I think. Yeah, it's so true. It's so difficult not to do it as well, isn't it? Um, yeah, and that is a challenge. That's something. That those issues are uh, things that all of us need to wrestle with. Whether we're people like you know, like uh, who put work out into the world, like you know, like like you and myself as well. Um, you know, who are getting books published, and you know, who are you know have people who look at our work and respond to it, and. Um, or whether we're people who are, who don't do that and are just consumers in a sense, you know, um, yeah. for work. Like, so we're all challenged. I think we all have to. I think it's something we all need to wrestle with. I think that's why this is an important book um, because I think we, there's not been enough written about this issue, and yeah. and I think we need more pe- more wisdom on it. And yeah, obviously talking to people who are older, as you say, the youngest person within his seventies, you know. Um, yeah, that that's the really healthy way to do it. I think I'm really looking forward to reading this book. Yeah. Well, you know, and one of the things that for us that was so interesting that and that has come out since the book has been done is you know we've been in the you know as an author you always go through the endorsement phase where you're looking for endorsements and you're asking people to read it stuff. But, you know, we 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 try to reach a very broad spectrum of folks. Um, and then, and what was so interesting for us is the kind of responses we're getting from people who have would never be on the same book. Mm. I mean, people who are just across far right, far left, and I'm like, wow, there's a real agreement actually among us about the way of Jesus. Mm. And maybe if we actually started there, we might we might get somewhere together. And and even you know, for pastors, you know. One of the things about this topic that's so, I think, interesting is that we all have a view of power. Yeah. Every pastor, every Christian has a view of what it means to be powerful in the world. And, and that, you know, that's going to be tied to their understanding of devotion, of praise, of worship, of, of success in their job, in their ministry, in their church, whatever it is. We all are assuming a way of power. And so the question that it has to get raised is, is our power in our Christian lives, in our, in our, in our work in our ministries, in our churches, is it actually power from below or is it power from above? Mm. And just because we're a church doesn't mean it's always power from above. In fact, I think the church is always going to be tempted by the exact opposite. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. 
Um, so, just as we come to a close, um, what is the what is the biggest single lesson you've learned from this book, and that you're going to take into your um, take into your life going forward? Yeah, you know, it's hard to kind of narrow it to one. Um, there's so many things that come to me sitting with all of these folks. I, I think the thing that I come back to the most, that, that over and over again I'm constantly confronted by, is just how nefarious the temptation towards worldly power really is and how easy it is for me to dress it up to make it look Christian. Mm. And in every aspect of my life, in my prayer life, it's easy for me to try to embrace power there, to try to use God, to try to manipulate him to get it on my side. In worship, to try to generate an experience rather than be with God regardless of the experience. In preaching, to try to wield my ability, my savvy, and my rhetoric rather than the cross. Um, all the way down to um, book sales and, you know, social media and everything. I mean, it's what... All of these tools that we're given, all of these kind of callings we're given, I, I'm just looking at them and every one of them are ingrained with a temptation towards a certain kind of power. And I'm constantly going, which, which, which way am I giving myself to? And, and the, one, the one biblical passage I keep coming to over and over is when Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. Hmm. And... That means Paul's assuming if you if you give yourself to the way from above, you'll be tempted to grow weary. Because the way from above takes a lot of time. Um, J.I. Mm-hmm. Packer, who we interviewed, said, you should have a 50-year plan. And sometimes I don't even have a week plan, <laughs> let alone a 50-year plan. And the idea of you have to give yourself to these rhythms of life and this vision of life that is decades upon decades upon decades. And if you're not seeing the fruit of this way now, don't grow weary. Mm. If so in the spirit, you will reap in the spirit. The problem is the flesh actually gives us what we want rather quickly. Yeah. And and we've been we've been formed by a culture that tells us that the, the good things are things that you receive quickly. And it's that I'm just I'm confronted over and over with how tempted I am to believe that about the kingdom as well. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing about this. Um, the book's not yet out. as as I'm recording the 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 book's not yet out. Um, but um, by the time this goes out, it may well be. But I would definitely recommend this book. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be definitely giving it a read. Um, and recommending it to people probably if it's if it's anything like we're talking about you know um, I didn't get a chance to read it before we before today but um, I'm looking forward to reading it definitely so thank you for sharing Carl no thank you so much it was good chatting with you okay great well that's that's all for this week everybody um, thanks for listening and take care and we'll talk soon <laughs>